and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. In addition to industry trends, you will hear our guests provide their perspectives on the evolving strategic initiatives that are driving success and enabling our channel to better compete in the broader financial services industry. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. We will then turn it over to Jana Capaletti, the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, who will kick us off with a trending overview. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at Ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hi, this is Janet Capaletti, the Managing Director of Research for Stathis Partners and the creator of BankChannelResearch.com, here with a couple of highlights from April 2022. FC productivity in April was 6% over the previous April due to a 10% uptick in managed money fees. This may be due to the dramatic swell in managed money assets. According to the Stathis Partners Annual Benchmarking Study, available now, Managed money account assets soared 38% year over year. Managed money accounted for $31,000 per FC, a nice leap from $28,500 a year ago. Growth in the managed assets has paid off with our year-to-date cumulative FC productivity through April at $204,000 per rep, 11% over last April. I'd like to thank LPL and Infinex for providing data used in this analysis. And now I'd like to turn it over to Scott and Bob. Hello, and welcome to the BISA Trend Watch podcast. I am Scott Stathis. I will be your host, along with Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself in a moment. This month, we have two executives on our panel, one from a large national bank and one from a regional bank in Texas, and their perspectives of the industry will provide insights into the latest important trends and strategic initiatives. And we look forward to the discussion. First, Bob, I'm going to pass it over to you so you can introduce yourself and then have our guests introduce themselves. Well, thank you, Scott. And hello, everyone. I am Bob Mattel. And let me welcome you to this, our 21st edition of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And as Scott said, we have another great panel with us today. But before we meet them, let me remind you to visit BISANet.org for all things BISA. Now, let's get going. From Atlanta, Georgia, we have Jacinda Norville. Thank you so much. 
Again, uh, Jacinda Norville, I'm happy to be here with you today. I'm the Senior Managing Director and Sales Execution Director for Truist Investment Services, a full-service broker-dealer program based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, but serving the full United States. We have over 850 advisors. We don't currently have a traditional platform program, but we do have over $140 billion in assets under management and are doing about $940 million in annual revenue. So glad to be here with you today. And you just say $140 billion under management, right? I did. Wow. Okay. So, all right, everyone out there in podcast world, be ready for some really good stories about that. And from Rockville, Texas, we have Cheryl Sutter. Thanks, Bob. I'm Cheryl Sutter. I'm a 31-year licensed professional. Currently, I'm a program manager for our institution, been here since 2007, and am in the process of transitioning my role as a producing manager and working on a new project here for the bank that we're going to call Private Client Services. We currently have six financial advisors, one retirement consultant, we manage a little over $400 million on our platform, and our revenues last year were $3.5 million. And you said private client, right? Private client services. All Ties right, in nicely it. to the wealth vision that we're seeing trending in the industry right now. Excellent. So our audience is going to hear a lot today about wealth management. And let's get right into it, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Bob. So we do want to talk a little bit later about this whole evolution from investment services to wealth management and what it means, because it has to be more than just words, right? So we'll get into that. But let's just start with what we're seeing as we look at the trending. So I think it's safe to say we're not in calm times right now relative to what we're dealing with the markets, et cetera. So between the supply chain stuff and geopolitical stress and inflation and interest rates, there are a lot of curveballs to be handled, right? So Cheryl, maybe you can kick us off and then just into what we'd love to hear your insights, obviously, into what does this all mean? So how is it affecting your business, this volatility, et cetera? You know, how's it affecting what you're focusing on, the products and services that you're leading with, your revenue projections, and the way you and your advisors are working with your clients? I know that's a big question, but just some knee-jerk reactions to the environment we're in and how you're managing through it, Cheryl? Yeah, Scott, over the 31 years I've been in business, we've seen an awful lot of market volatility for a large variety of reasons. Going back to 87, we've had the 2000 dot-coms, financial crisis in 2008, never thought I'd see a pandemic, but we've seen that. And now we've had a bond market that's moving faster than we've seen in over 40 years. And obviously that's shaken up a lot of the retail investors out there. What it's really done for us is more than ever, it's, it's reaching back out to our customers and ensuring that we are aligned about where they want their futures to go, how long they're investing for, if this is the time to be making portfolio changes, and really just sticking back to the suitability and having the best interest of our customers in focus. It does not change anything that I put into the budget this year. We're going to go ahead and continue to have our targets as is in the budget. So that's just a general, we don't make those changes just based off of short-term events. We're not seeing a lot of money go off the tables right now. I'm not going to say that we haven't had some customers go ahead and go to cash, but it's been a small amount. We're a conservative institution. And so again, it's more so than ever, it's, it's about communicating with your clients, 
making sure that you have your portfolios in the right risk-adjusted models and just reminding them that these are generally, generally short-term trends. Typically, this type of event lasts no more than two years historically, but we never know what the future is going to be. So more so than ever, it's just making sure that you're aligned with your customers. Yeah, and you implied client outreach, right, which is critical. We see advisors who, and I'll use the term deer in the headlights, who are not sure how to manage this and are not doing enough outreach, losing assets. And the opposite is the case with those advisors that are what I'll categorize as comforting their clients, calling even if there's not anything specific to talk about relative to their investments, but just to say, listen, we have this under control. We've been through these types of things before. You're good. We have a plan. Your portfolio is adjusted. Just wanted to make sure you're comfortable, right? Those advisors are gathering assets just by nature of of that outreach. And I think an important piece of that, and Jacinda, maybe you can give us your perspective as well, is the importance of financial planning, right? Those clients that have a financial plan with their advisor tend to be much more comfortable, especially after the advisor reaches out to them and says, we have a plan in place. Don't panic, stay the course, right? I mean, that's, all those factors are really important relative to deepening client relationships and continuing to gain the trust of your clients. So Jacinda, does that resonate with you? Absolutely, it resonates. So client outreach is a different thing. When the markets are going up day after day, clients don't necessarily need for you to call them to feel good about things, or in some cases need you to, <laughs> need you to call them, although we definitely like the outreach. However, when markets are turbulent, they need those calls. And so our advisors are having to work harder just to calm people. And, and that's what being an advisor is all about, is advising people and handholding them through these times and making them feel confident about their investment decisions, and more importantly, their plan. So if you are planning based, yes, it makes it a lot easier as long as they're still on track. And again, feeling comfortable with the risk. It may not be the vision that they had at the time. They may not be happy about it, but if they're on track with their plan, then that definitely helps them navigate these difficult times. But I will say that for our platform, which is a full service range of products and solutions that we do feel like these turbulent times do put pressure on revenue projections for the rest of the year. So we will have to continue to monitor that asset-based accounts just because of the volatility. But there's definitely an opportunity to focus more on asset protection products and strategies. So I know that there are definitely opportunities for advisors in these types of markets. And as you mentioned, the more they stay in touch with their clients, they will help them weather the storm and retain those clients and then have the opportunity to continue to grow or help other clients during these turbulent times. Yeah, no, agreed. You mentioned asset protection, which I saw Bob's eyes light up as soon as you said that, because that's his passion, right? One of the things we've said over and over again in these podcasts is if you're helping clients grow their assets, but not helping them protect their assets, you're only doing half of your job. So Bob, with that, I'm going to pass it to you. I know you have a protection question, although that might be a little bit later, but you have a related question, right? Absolutely. But just so you nailed it and grow and protect is what we talk about all the time. A financial plan without a protection component is not a financial plan. It's an investment plan. But I digress. We'll get to protection in just a bit. Well, this is Trend Watch. And one of the trends we've been watching is with transactional business. So, Jacinda, what have you seen regarding insurance and annuity companies adjusting to the continuing move to fee-based advisory business models? I mean, everybody's moving to that realm. And how is it being received by your management and advisors? Well, we've definitely seen companies start to create product that can be used within a fee-based account. So 
Absolutely. And that is creating options and flexibility for both the advisors and clients. I will say that we feel like that is a little early in that trend. We have not had everybody just go straight to that solution. But I think times like this will definitely uh, peak more interest for both advisors and clients, knowing that they have that solution available. So we're definitely seeing it. And I think we're at the early stages of seeing that implemented as part of an overall planning or product offering for more clients. Yeah, I would have to agree. I think it's the whole transition from commissions to assets under management to ultimately probably feed the service, which is something I think we'll probably see down the road as well. And I think this all generates some really good opportunities for insurance and annuity companies to really raise the bar and really understand how our business is evolving. Cheryl, do you have any thoughts on that? I would absolutely agree. I mean, we're about 65% of our assets under management are within fee-based. We've seen some of the annuity solutions that have gone to a fee-based, but I still I agree with Jacinta. It's uh, just a little bit early on. I think, again, it'll present some opportunities down the road within the insurance product areas, but I do agree that it's early. And to all of our listeners out there, especially our insurance company and annuity providers, take note. It is early, but start thinking about how we can really look at this business. And years ago was investment services. Actually, years ago was brokerage. It went from brokerage to investment services. And now we're talking about wealth. So we have to really migrate our product structures to meet the changes in the environment and in the business. And with that, back to Scott. Thanks, Bob. So one of the things that we talk about with our clients as they look to differentiate their offerings are different areas of specialization. And one of the areas of specialization that gets a lot of lip service, but I don't think has been perfected yet is sustainable investing, what's called ESG, right? So there's a lot of what's called greenwashing out there, which is slapping a marketing label on a fund to pretend you're sustainable, but it really isn't when you, <laughs> when you pull the sheet off the corpse, so to speak, right? How do you really do that? So the question is this, so this whole ESG trend it's obviously garnered attention. Wondering if you have looked at that, what your thoughts are on it. Are you supporting that type of strategy? And if so, how do you manage it and how do you make sure you're really providing ESG-oriented advice and avoiding what has become called greenwashing from a marketing perspective? And I know that's a textured question, but just give us your knee-jerk reactions to that. Cheryl, maybe you can start us off. So there obviously is a big interest in ESG. It comes up from clients from time to time. And I think there is a place in portfolios for another alternative category out there. It's like technology, healthcare, Bitcoin, which has been a big trend out there, although we're not offering that to clients, but we get asked about these things. So we have made it a part, a very, very small part for our high net worth clients where it makes sense and as part of their growth component of their portfolios. And how we are making that available is directly through institutional money managers that specialize in ESG. And we've partnered with them. So we're outsourcing it and we're relying on the experience of those money managers to provide that in that particular space. And again, as a very small component of an overall portfolio, it did very, very well last year. It's been underwater this year. Again, it's a pretty volatile space, so it's not something for everyone, but for customers that want that exposure, we certainly are supporting it. But again, we're leveraging the expertise of an institutional money manager to do so. Interesting. Jacinda, your thoughts on that? 
Well, I can say yes, that we are supporting the strategy, you know, as clients are asking about it. And we are using third-party partners to offer solutions in the space, much like what Cheryl was describing. So we do utilize those and they are available. I will say we are also working on some of our own specific investment portfolio strategies to be able to have some of that, some internal offerings as well, but right now leveraging third parties. I will say back to this is sort of an early trend. I think we may hear more about this on the news than we are hearing from specific requests from our clients. So again, it's available and we do talk to clients about it, but I would say that not every client is asking about this at this point in time. Yeah, point of interest relative to that, and I'd like to give a shout out to an organization we did a podcast with, uh, what, about a year and a half ago called Your Stake, Y-O-U-R-S-T-A-K-E. And they have a very interesting and effective ESG filtering tool that advisors and organizations can use. And what I mean by that is that ESG means different things to different people. And this tool allows you to work with a client to define ESG for that client. So it breaks down ESG into all its components and just basically think about checking boxes like, no, this is what I'm interested in ESG, not this one, but this one is, and this one, right? So you customize what ESG means to you. And it has this filtering algorithm to filter out anything that is not in the parameter of what you just defined. And then you can dig into the reasons why things were rejected or investments are on the list to see specifically, there's a ton of research behind it, specifically why they may not be on the list or may be on the list. And it's a very consultative service that this Your Stake software allows you to provide. It's one of the most fascinating things I've seen in a while. So to me, if you're going to be, if, if you're an advisor and you're going to say you specialize in ESG, that's a layer of service that can really enhance what you do. You can still work with third parties, right? But on the front end, you're working, it's like you would work with a client with financial planning, right? And do collaborative planning. This is collaborative definition of what ESG means to you, the client, and then coming up with a filtered list of options. So it's it's pretty interesting. So again, I wanted to give that shout out to your stake who's doing some really, really cool stuff relative to ESG. So, Bob, we're going to shift back to your favorite subject, and that is protection and risk management. So back to you. Absolutely. And everybody who listens to our podcast or has been to any of our meetings and hears from Scott and I, we always talk about protection and the six core needs. And I always joke and flip them upside down and say there's six core needs, and it starts with protection, legacy, income now, income later, credit, liquidity, and savings. Liquidity and savings is being the foundation, but I like to have some fun and flip it around. So risk management is becoming a more discussed topic and hopefully more than just September, which is Insurance Awareness Month. So more specifically, protecting your client as they're growing assets. And I know Truist, uh, Jacinda, has a very large presence in the protection industry. How does the wealth program work with your insurance business? And can you share any best practices relating to doing a better job of protecting clients' assets? Well, absolutely. And I will just comment. I am a big believer that having um, asset protection conversations is critically important and definitely work to emphasize that with all of our advisors and overall with the work that we do. It's very important. But as far as how we work with our insurance partners, at Truist, we focus on what we call an integrated relationship management model, meaning we work very closely with our business partners, like our insurance partners, to help solve client needs. And we do that 
starting with financial planning-based process to discover the client's true needs and help them achieve their goals. So that involves a lot of questions and, and more importantly, a lot of listening. But this planning-based approach, along with having the business partners as what we call extensions of our team, so not just a outside partner, but somebody that we truly believe is an extension of our team, helps us seamlessly offer a broader full range of solutions to our clients. And I think it's that holistic approach and having those business partners on our team really helps our advisors feel confident and have the resources and support they need to offer those solutions. You know, we're hearing a lot more about this cross-departmental business and teams and, and business partners. Is it a formalized process or is it like the handshake kind of deal where everybody kind of just assembles to really make sure that the needs are met across the table? I want to say it's more of a formalized process. It works differently in some different areas or markets, but I can say that we have a formalized emphasis and talk about that as a strategy across our whole company. We truly believe that clients don't come in wanting one thing. I mean, they may come in and want one thing, but if you're really talking to them and giving them overall advice, then that encompasses multiple things. And we need to make sure that we have the right partners and the right resources to be able to help them meet their needs across the board. And we do have emphasis on regular team meetings and pull everybody in so that it is not a one-off, you know, if somebody happens to think about it, we'll go track down a partner kind of a thing. Excellent. You know, and I think that's one of the trends we're seeing. As we talk more about wealth management, we're going to hear more about teams and how business partners mean a lot and how cross-referrals work and how that whole business, and really knocking down the silos in a lot of organizations. And if you're doing it at Truist, one of the larger banks out there, and with a ridiculously large insurance business. I mean, I've watched them over the years being a consolidator of agencies. I mean, I'm going to guess at least 200 acquisitions over the last 10 years or so on the insurance side. So Cheryl, how are you guys handling the protection question? And what best practices can you share with the audience today? When I joined the firm in 2007, I think we were pretty early into moving our clients from transactional business into fee-based business. And we took a hard look about five years ago at our overall diversification and realized that we were missing a big opportunity in the insurance space. We literally had less than 1% of all of our assets in that area. So we spent a great deal of time. We've got a very seasoned team of professionals here and ensured that we provided continuing education and deepening their understanding into the insurance world. We're primarily commercial banks, so most of our customers are commercial, and that's a huge opportunity in there. What I've seen is a trend, particularly with business owners here in Texas as a result of COVID, is we're seeing a lot of business owners selling their books of business who have literally gone from being business rich and cash poor into all of a sudden selling a business and you know having 25, 30, 40 million dollars of cash assets. And so part of that is to this point is being able to utilize insurance to go ahead and mitigate risk. So it's been a big opportunity for us and across the board we've certainly have significantly increased our insurance business and I think it'll be a continuing trend. It's it's you know being able to deepen the wallet share and asking the right questions and to be particularly honest I don't think most clients out there think of their financial institutions, for the most part, in these smaller communities of providing insurance. And it's certainly something that we are offering. You mentioned asking the right questions and discovery is obviously the biggest part of really getting into that conversation. Asking the right questions or asking a client, 
When was the last time you reviewed your policy? We found has become really one of the newer trends, so to speak, in the financial services industry. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, for sure. And one of the things we're looking at is building out an education program for our business owners. I think that we're uniquely in a position of leveraging the expertise across the entire scope of the bank, like utilizing our trust division and some of our strategic partners in our communities at being able to educate these business owners that everyone says that they have a succession plan in place, but do they really, do they know how to do business evaluations and where do they get that at? And financial institutions have those resources out there. So that's asking the right questions during discovery is one part of it, but also being known in your communities of having that expertise by providing ongoing education is really key. And it really starts with making sure that your commercial lenders understand that you have that expertise under the house. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it absolutely will deepen the wallet share and discovery is a big part of that. Just that I saw you nodding before. Did you have something to add on to the whole discovery and policy review conversation? No, I just think that's spot on. Like I said, I believe that asking a lot of questions and listening is key to that and that there's a lot of different things out there, insurance needs that can be solved and people don't always think about that. But even just asking the question with the insurance reviews, I think is critically important because either people have it and you should be happy about that or they don't and you need to make sure that you're fulfilling that need or or bringing awareness to it for the clients. Absolutely agree. And before I toss it over to Scott, let me just remind folks out there that one of the biggest pushbacks we hear from clients sometimes is I'm going to self-insure, especially when like long-term care or something comes up. I think it's up to us to really help them understand you really want to self-insure long-term care. You can get a policy that would pay pennies on the dollar for what a long-term care experience might cost you. So really think about what self-insuring means. And with that, it's time to pass the baton to Scott Stathis. All right. So I have a question. Before I ask that question, I can't help but comment on a few of the observations I have while listening to you guys talk about the protection needs. So if I'm an advisor, there are two things that I want to be really good at. One is positioning what I do for a client. And then two is the questions I ask once I do the appropriate positioning especially as it relates to asset protection. So what I mean by that is, I think every advisor when meeting with a client should say something like, I have two jobs in my work with you. The first is to help you grow your assets. And the second is to help you protect your assets. I'd like to ask you questions about both sides of the balance sheet so I can make sure I'm doing those two jobs effectively. And then you're off and running. It's a very simple positioning, but a very important positioning. So since you stated in that opening that the second part of your job is helping them protect their assets, then what I would do if I was an advisor is make sure I have a standardized set of protection-oriented questions that I ask that client. Most advisors historically have been afraid to get into that discussion simply because, I mean, they make up all kinds of excuses, right? But they just haven't thought enough about it. And if you have the right questions then you know exactly where you're going and you know how to answer the the responses that you get to those questions. So that all said, a quick question before I ask my next question is the discovery process is critical, especially as it relates to protection. Have either of your organizations standardized elements of the discovery process to make sure the protection questions are asked? Is there any standardization that has gone on so far in either of your organizations? 
it's sort of yes and no. I mean, we have checklists and things that are available. So those are the best practices and things that we coach and talk to our advisors about. I don't know that we have a systematic way to confirm that that is part of the process each and every time. But we also have, you know, utilized Money Guide Pro and other financial planning tools that have those as part of the planning process. So between that and then supporting that as part of our model is how we're approaching it today. But I think it's great to, I mean, it needs to be asked every time, but I don't know that we've been able to monitor that that's being asked every time, but we do provide tools, both from a checklist and a sales process support standpoint, as well as, like I said, a planning tools or systems that definitely help tee that up. Yeah. Well, and so you're, you're laying down the stepping stones to get to a standardized process, which is what you have to do, right? So I mean, in my opinion, it should be the way we do business, period, right? But what does that mean? It means you're changing the culture of the organization because it hasn't been done that way. And that's a fairly heavy lift, but you have to start working in that direction. I would love to see us in our channel get to a point where we're standardized on having that discussion of both sides of the balance sheet, right? Because that's what we should be doing. And I think we would be ahead of other competitors in other channels if we could do that on a regular basis. So I hope we can migrate to that. So that's pie in the sky thinking. Cheryl, any <laughs> any knee-jerk reactions to that? Yeah, I would agree with Jacinda. I'd love to say that we have a standardized process. We started, like I said, just a few years ago through our discovery that we weren't offering insurance to our customers and weren't asking those questions. The two areas that we really have done a much better job is in the long-term care. And we started that. That was a natural space. I feel confident that the team is asking those questions or at least pointing that out because you've got a certain window of time to be able to make that particular type of policy work for clients spending on their health. So we've seen good trends there and also in the term policy reviews. I think standardizing, particularly for these business owners and asking the right discovery questions to talk about changes to their business or whether or not they have a need for key man or how can we go ahead and protect the sale of a business. Those are great areas for opportunities for us. And we definitely need to do a better job there. Yeah, I think that's a worthy goal for us in our channel. I mean, one of the things that we talk about on these podcasts is that if we really leverage everything we have because we work in banks and credit unions in our channel, we can be so far ahead of every other competitor out there. Well, when I say every other competitor, think of our primary competitor, right, which are the IBDs, the independent channel. We have so much more to offer if we can fire on all cylinders. And what I mean by that is that, you know, what Bob referred to as the cross-departmental cooperation, right? Working effectively cross-departmentally. So we're providing a seamless array of services to clients because there are no walls between departments. There are no silos. There are no trust issues. And you're working as a team, not only internally, but Jacinda, to what you referred to with your extended partners. And that you, know, you think about the, the appropriate segments of your client base, that makes the people in those segments, the client in those segments feel really important if they're being served by a team of subject matter experts. You don't get much better than that, right? And if you're an advisor, if you're a wealth advisor and you can leverage those internal resources for not only referrals, but provide a two-way street of opportunity flow you're going to beat every advisor in the independent channel because they just don't have that. I mean, think of the resources we have in our industry, right? So I think our potential is huge and we just have to get better at doing some of the stuff that we're discussing. All right, I'm going to get off my soapbox. (laughs) So 
So let me ask the question that I have in front of me here, which is, and it's, I think, completely related. We are, as we implied at the beginning of the discussion, we're seeing a migration, at least from the standpoint of language in our channel, from what we used to call investment services to what we're now more often calling wealth management. In my mind, there's a big difference between the two, but I happen to know for certain that for a lot of organizations out there, they're just changing the words and not changing the business. <laughs> so that's just not working for me. But fortunately, there are organizations that are actually changing the business model to be true wealth managers. So the question is, what does that mean to you? That being wealth management versus investment services. What has to happen for a firm to truly make that migration? What does wealth management look like when compared to investment services? And is that something that you're seeing in your organization? So Cheryl, let me keep you on point for that question. Then Jacinda will pass it to you after we hear Cheryl's thoughts. Cheryl? I believe that financial institutions are in a unique opportunity to expand all of the services that they're providing to customers. Investment services to me means you're just managing the assets. You're not looking at the holistic picture of your client and providing all of the underlying services and expertise that financial institutions have to offer. That means trust services, estate and financial planning. I believe it brings all divisions of a financial institution to the table. And that's really, our bank has got a commitment to that. And it really starts with leadership. And our organization has spent an enormous amount of money in recent years at providing true leadership training across the senior management team and executive team of this organization. So for the first time since I joined in 2007, we're aligned, not just top to bottom, but side to side as the organization. And we're having conversations and I've got greater access to all of the senior management team as a result to say, how can we be doing a better job at providing our trust services, the investment services, estate and financial planning, succession planning, giving our higher valued customer greater access to better rates, whether it be mortgages, et cetera. I mean, we have the opportunity to really give our clients what I would consider when you say wealth management to me, that's the entire picture. It's all of it combined. And I think that we're in a very unique opportunity here in financial institutions to provide that. And we've made a large commitment and the bank is working on a program to bring all of that together and package it. I think it's going to be a long project. It's not going to happen overnight, but I think in 18 to 24 months, we're going to go ahead and have all of that aligned. There's already commitments of doing seminars. It used to be our division was only doing seminars. And now I've got the commercial lending team that's going in and bringing in everybody across the business to go ahead and do a, a, an event in the banking centers. So that's a big change for us. That's impressive. I love that concept of joint seminars too. So you have a team cross-departmentally doing seminars and being out in the space as subject matter experts together. I think that's really good for image and awareness, et cetera. So good for you. That's very cool. Jacinda, your thoughts? Well, I have a different thought on this. So, you know, at Truist, we have both. We have an investment services program and a wealth management 
program. So we're a full service broker dealer, so we can offer the full gamut of products and solutions in both programs. So I see an investment services program as more of a retail bank mass affluent program. That's kind of how we have that set up. And the wealth management program is more aligned with our private banking wealth advisor segment. So both programs, as I mentioned, have full service offerings and the differentiation is really around the client need in the client segment. So as I was mentioning, more of the mass affluent client need and then the high net worth client need. So we still see a need for both because I think the needs change. So as people move up sort of the wealth band and they have more complex wealth management needs, you can move up and in our wealth space, Cheryl mentioned that's where we're bringing in more of our trust partners, fiduciary partners, more advanced credit and lending and more complex insurance solutions. We have an ultra high net worth wealth management division that does family governance and education and things that you need as you're really moving up to the upper end of the wealth spectrum. So we still see a need for both, but we really just think about it differently from a client segmentation perspective and needs of clients in those segments. Yeah. You know what? That's fair, right? So there have been some interesting exercises that I've been involved with related to mapping what I'll call delivery channels to client segments efficiently, right? And so that's exactly what you're doing. I mean, the trick is in the handoffs, right? Once clients evolve from one segment to the next, how do you do that smoothly and seamlessly without aggravating the advisors? <laughs> right? There are always those little tricks that you have to manage through, but that makes perfect sense, obviously, right? Mapping delivery mechanisms, so to speak, to client segments. And one of the more interesting ones what we've seen, and it works well when done creatively, are remote advisors, right? So what we used to call a call center, which is not a really good name for it because it's proactive, not reactive, right? So some of these remote advisor strategies are working really, really well too as a delivery channel. So so I get that. And Jacinda, obviously you're with a very large organization and you have the benefit of scale to be able to do that and have those different delivery tiers. So that is cool. All right. Bob, I think we're at the lightning round question. Is that correct? It is time for our lightning round question. Vacation season is coming up. Those of you that don't know, you're probably going to be listening to this after we recorded it, which will be after Memorial Day, but Memorial Day is only a few days away. What is your ideal vacation? Is it the busy agenda with lots to do and all these tours? It is a vacation where you're kind of doing a self-guided tour. Is it no agenda at all and just chill at a resort or could it be a staycation? Jacinda, we go to you first. There's no wrong answer here. All right. Well, that's great. There's no wrong answer, but I was looking forward to this one. So I am definitely one that likes to do tours with lots to do. I cannot sit idly nor can my husband. So we have to be kept busy, but we also have to leave the country to take a vacation because otherwise I am too tied to my, you know, phone. And so I literally have to leave the country to do that. So we are big fans of Viking cruises. And so we have started planning one of those. And so I've got one coming up in August and looking forward to leaving the country and enjoying some time overseas. Well, that's great. And I hope your call out to Viking gets you a free cruise now too. Oh, yes. Yes. Great, wouldn't it? Because we have hundreds of thousands of listeners that we influence. <laughs> In the travel business, absolutely. Cheryl, where are we going? 
Well, I'm hitting Vegas this coming weekend over Memorial Day. So uh, wish me luck. And I prefer right now, as crazy as things have been in this industry, is, is not to have an agenda. If I'm going abroad, which I haven't done in a number of years, I'd like to, when I go overseas, I'd like to have a full agenda. But right now, it's all about doing short little trips. So this weekend, it's Vegas. And next month over Father's Day, I'm going to the first time going to Bristol to the NHRA drag racing. Awesome. Wow. That's cool. Very cool. And this is the one time I also get to ask Scott a question. (laughs) Well, I'm definitely guilty of kind of similar to Jacinda. I cannot sit. So I can't remember doing a chill vacation, which is probably bad. I just cannot remember ever doing one. And it's usually not guided tours. It's kind of self-created tours, but it's it's always the adventure going from one place to another and exploring stuff. So actually in about a week and a half, I'll be leaving for Ireland to visit my daughter who did a semester abroad out there. And we're not in, we're not in one place for more than two days at a clip. So we're going all over Ireland and just doing the adventure. That's That's a fairly typical thing for me. <laughs> Bob, how about you? Well, having done the busy agenda with lots of tours and having done the self-guided tours, I'm at the chill at a resort, just <laughs> a week under a umbrella with a drink in my hand, my little white AirPods in my ears, and I'm good. Wake me up. So I have to ask just a follow-on quick question before we end this. So we've all talked about types of vacations. How about your favorite vacation ever? Does one jump to mind for you, Jacinda, and then Cheryl? That's a tough one. Uh, Spending a weekend in Tuscany probably uh, would be at the top of a list. I'm a bit of a foodie. So that was a pretty unique adventure. I could go for that right now. That sounds good to me. (laughs) How about you, Cheryl? Yeah, a couple of years ago, I did Queenstown, New Zealand and Queensland in Australia. And being in the Great Barrier Reef was uh, snorkeling out there was one of the most amazing experience of my life. Wow. That's cool. It's funny because mine is the South Island of New Zealand. Three weeks touring the South Island of New Zealand. The most amazing place I've ever been. Yeah, it's beautiful there. That was my favorite. Okay, Bob, your favorite. Mine's going to be Hawaii because we visited several of the islands and did all three components. We did some guided tours, some exploring our own, and I absolutely enjoyed some of the beach opportunities, just chilling out and doing nothing. So it combined all three into one. Sounds good. Well, I have a suggestion since this is Memorial Day weekend coming up, start getting all the ingredients for margaritas and have a good summer Memorial Day weekend, you guys. (laughs) Well, thank both of you for all of your contributions and your thoughts. This has been a great discussion. And one thing I'd like to point out, and this is, Bob, something that I think you'll probably notice as well, that it's pretty cool that more and more of our podcasts have been, and this is not by design, it's just happening naturally, have been with women leaders in our channel, more and more so, which is really cool to see. So congrats to both of you for being two of the women leaders in our channel. And it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. So Bob, let me pass it to you for wrap up thoughts. Absolutely. Well, before I do, let me echo those comments as well. Thank you both for uh, being on the panel. And as again, as women leaders in the industry, we really really uh, look forward to more and more opportunities for women in the industry. I have three takeaways from this podcast. Number one, financial planning means don't panic. We're in a very volatile market right now. So really, if you continue with a financial planning attitude toward the business, your clients will never have to panic. Number two, asset protection is key. Grow and protect. 
And then the third takeaway I have is that whole cross-departmental team building within your organization that can help you better serve your clients' overall needs. And really, that's what wealth management is all about. Again, thanks to our panel. Thanks to Janet Capaletti from Bank Channel Research for her help in coordinating all the data and research for this and all BISA Industry Trend Watch podcasts. Thanks to Jeff Hartney and Irene from BISA. Thanks to Ameriprise for their continuing sponsorship of this podcast series. And don't forget, we have two other podcast series focused on our industry, Untangling FinTech and Industry Leadership Success. These can be found wherever you get your other podcasts. So I think it's time to say goodbye. We hope you enjoyed the show. Say goodbye, Scott. <laughs> goodbye, Scott. Hold <laughs> on in your awesome radio voice, Bob. And the last takeaway is go take a vacation. <laughs> it's time. Yes. Right, we'll Bye, see you, everybody. Bye. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. Be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.